Hello and welcome to Worldly. It's me, Zach Beecham, here as usual with Alex Ward. Jen Williams is on a richly earned vacation, but we've got the excellent Dara Lind from the Weeds with us. Hello, Alex and Dara. Yo. Hey, Dara. <laughs> so, and you two listeners. Hello to you guys, too. So today we're going to talk about Trump's deals. He loves deals. But when he was running for president, he liked to tear down the agreements that the United States had made with other countries, like during this debate with Hillary Clinton. We have horrible deals. Our jobs are being taken out by the deal that her husband signed, NAFTA, one of the worst deals ever. But in the past two years, we've seen Trump try to make deals, like his own version of an actual deal. And there's this sort of template that's emerged in his negotiations. The president gets another country to agree to something minor. He then claims on Twitter or in some PR availability that he solved the entire problem. And then his aides have to clean up the obvious mess that this situation creates. And we saw this a lot in the past week because there was big deal news on two fronts, the nuclear negotiations with North Korea and conversations with Mexico and Canada about NAFTA. This week, we'll dig into how the revelations on each of those issues illustrates the real art of the Trump deal. Let's start with North Korea. Alex, why don't you kick us off with what the news this week actually was? Sure. So it turns out, based on some reporting that I— I guess did. Um, <laughs> Not I guess. You did do it. Yes. I, I did. I, you know, it's all a blur now. Um, it turns out that Trump told North Korean leader Kim Jong-un that he would sign what's called a peace declaration soon after their Singapore summit in June. A peace declaration is effectively where the U.S., North Korea, and maybe other countries would join in and say, the Korean War is over, right? The war still continued since fighting ended in 1953. And both, By that you mean it hasn't been undeclared, right? Like right. We're not actually fighting North Korea. It's we're, just that we haven't agreed to technically end the war yet. Correct. But you'll still see, you know, at the what's called the demilitarized zone, the inter-Korean border, you know, South Korean and North Korean troops are still there. There are still weapons amassed. I mean, it still looks like a Cold War possibly turning hot at some point. But no, there have been no real war-like uh, moments since 1953. And so what this declaration would do is make it so North Korea feels safer, right? And then might be willing to give up some of its nuclear weapons and declare part of its nuclear arsenal, which is something the United States wants in order to kind of give it even more concessions. And so it would start a longer cycle. So the question there is whether that's actually going to happen given that we didn't know anything about it until Mr. Alex Ward reported it. You know, there wasn't like a big Trump like, yes, we are ending the Korean War. So uh, why haven't we seen that kind of revelation from Trump that the Korean War is over? He's kind of, part of the reason I, I follow this is because he's he's insinuated that something like this had happened before in, in public comments. He's like, we've made these secret deals that may lead to peace and we'll get there. And so North Korea watchers were like, hmm, we wonder what that is. But part of the reason he hasn't done it yet is there's a larger worry, which is if we sign this deal, two things might happen. One, North Korea may ask us to remove our troops from South Korea, which would therefore weaken our relationship with South Korea, a staunch ally. And then two is, rightfully, North Korea has cheated on past deals before and has lied about nuclear negotiations. And so what the U.S. wants is a large upfront payment, so to speak, before the U.S. decides, hey, everything's cool with North Korea. And that large upfront payment is show us where your nuclear weapons are, where your missiles are, where all your facilities are, allow inspectors, et cetera, et cetera. Now, Trump wasn't aware of any of these important policy details when he agreed <laughs> right. to Correct. this thing with North Korea. So, right, like Trump did not himself say, we will do this if you do X, Y, and Z. Trump saw this as an easy thing he could offer. Yeah, we're just signing away a peace agreement. Who cares? You know, it's right. just a piece of paper. It's our words. It doesn't matter, right? I, it's, it seems like that was his logic. 
The problem is that the other people who work in the U.S. government, like, say, Secretary of State Mike Pompeo, who is leading the North Korean negotiations, do appear to be aware of this. And so Pompeo, in his recent conversations with the North Koreans, has said, no, you need to do X, Y, and Z thing that Alex was just talking about in order— for us to give you any kind of meaningful concession. And the North Koreans are like, and and I'm going to be Jen here, and be like, what the fuck? Um, and they were really stunned that, you know, we went from Trump to Pompeo on this issue of peace negotiations to the point where I believe during a negotiation, one of the North Korean representatives told Mike Pompeo somewhat sneeringly to call your president when he was demanding things and see what he says, right? And now now what Alex is talking about explains why that was such a trump card, no pun intended. Right. It's worth remembering just how big a deal Donald Trump meeting with Kim Jong-un as opposed to lower-level people meeting was, right? Like, yes, it was a big deal when Pompeo went to North Korea in advance of that Singapore summit. But, like, the big card that everyone thought Trump was giving away was, I, Donald Trump, leader of my country, am going to meet with you. And part of that was the symbolic, you know, legitimation of the North Korean regime. But part of it is that these are negotiations that have been intermittent for a long time and haven't gone anywhere in large part because it's very hard to get either side to make commitments that they then find, you know, to be like reasonable without the other side giving things first. It's been a game of chicken for a couple of decades. And when you get the actual leaders of the country in the room together, the assumption is they will make commitments to each other that will actually be followed through on. So from the North Korean perspective, they've been working for literally decades to get the U.S. to a place where like they can actually hold them accountable, just as the U.S. has been thinking that they've been working for decades to get North Korea to a place where it would be accountable. And North Korea is going, all we wanted from you was to actually do what your president said you would do. And that appears to not be in the cards. So why should we actually go through with this denuclearization thing, which you haven't actually publicly set any standards for us to do, and we have given you a word that we would denuclearize that we've given before. Like, why shouldn't we do the same thing you did and kind of walk back the commitments that apparently we made? Right. And sequencing with North Korea matters. And actually, the, the agreement that Trump and Kim hashed out really had four points. The first couple of points were about establishing peaceful relations and then came the denuclearization issue. So if you're in North Korea and you've seen, one, the agreement has peace before denuclearization. Two, Trump said, I'm going to sign this thing soon after Singapore. It's no wonder that they're bristling now when Pompeo shows up in meetings and is asking for, like, give up some of your warheads, you know, allow inspectors, et cetera, et cetera. It's a complete sort of whiplash. Now, look, as I mentioned earlier, there are reasons why the U.S. may want those upfront considerations. But when you've got this messaging from Trump, especially, it's obvious why the North Koreans are both confused and angry. Trump continues to deal with this as something that has happened. He's not messaging this as like, oh, negotiations with North Korea are tough, but they're ongoing. Donald Trump believes that he has gotten the deal and that everything else is just working out the details, except that it turns out working out the details is working out the deal. Right. And that illustrates point one of our general assessment of Trump dealmaking, right? The president goes in headfirst by himself and sets the terms of something or gets somebody to to set the terms for him of some particular thing. Uh, and in this case, that's where we have solved the North Korea crisis because we've gotten— uh, this this four-point agreement. Yeah, yeah this, this agreement, which is vague. I mean, he literally said, I'm not putting words in his mouth. He literally said, North Korea is no longer a nuclear threat at one point. Like, right. Right. And so that he seems to think that promising them this and getting this agreement on paper 
was enough to solve the issue, and he claimed it as such publicly, which is why you can't have Mike Pompeo being like, no, we're not going to do this. He has to follow through and go through the motions of acting out Trump's words and continuing these negotiations with North Korea, even though the terms that Trump got to are total non-starters. There are a lot of conversations we have about Trump as like head of state versus head of government, right? And sometimes that results in this assumption that what Donald Trump says doesn't actually matter because either, you know, people in government aren't following through on his Twitter rants or because they're doing their own things independently to follow through on his policies and it doesn't matter that he's not paying attention. Situations like this are where the two collapse, right? If you get Donald Trump in the room as head of state, you are making government commitments. And this is part of why, you know, we have this report now about aides literally trying to prevent Trump from going back to the negotiating table in North Korea, from getting back in the room, because they know what happened the last time, right? Like, they know that there are negotiations with North Korea that are ongoing that are focused on these details, like allowing inspectors and what has to happen before we will officially sign a peace declaration. And Donald Trump, if he went back in there, would kind of take it back to this 10,000-foot situation, come out with the same kind of sketchy, oh, we've solved the problem. There's no situation in which getting Donald Trump in there to ink a deal as he has to as head of state slash head of government is actually going to move the ball forward. And just to be clear, the point that Dara is talking about is a North Korea scholar wrote a piece after he had interviewed a bunch of uh, people involved in North Korea negotiations and effectively found, got a lot of insight as to what's happening inside the administration as it relates to deals with North Korea. And, and one of the major issues, as Dara pointed out, was they're just trying to keep Trump away from it. I want to read a few quotes from this Tokyo Business Today piece that we've been talking about because they're really remarkable from a former official who's been consulted by the administration on these issues. Now, first he said, Trump really wants to meet Kim Jong-un again. He thinks that he alone can solve it based entirely on his personal relationship with Kim Jong-un. But the other people inside government, this is no longer a quote, this is me, um, think that that's a terrible idea. It seems like they think their job is, as you guys were just saying, keeping Trump away from these talks. Here's the quote. The bureaucracy is unifying to protect the world from Trump, the former official told oh me. They do not conceal their complete frustration and alarm with Trump. That is not the way that you're supposed to talk about presidents leading negotiating processes. The presidents come in at the end and they work out the very final nature of the things, not come in at the beginning and muck everything up and terrify the people who are actually the policy experts. I mean, I will say that one of the concerns that was raised about Trump and that I think we discussed the last time I was on Worldly when Pompeo had just been appointed was, well, what happens when the people who are in the room, even during these like bureaucratic negotiations, are themselves Trumpists? Like, how bad is that? And this does appear to be an indication that, you know, the independent diplomatic corps really does have the steering wheel in North Korea. It's just that they're using that steering wheel to make sure that the president doesn't get it back. It's like, a, I don't know, like a self-driving car. Like, yes, yeah. yes, the self-driving car of the U.S. Diplomatic Corps. I'm reminded of a piece you wrote a bit ago, Zach, that it's actually stuck in my mind for a while, which is that Trump's business background, right, like his sort of being top-down, I tell people what to do, is how he operates. And this is how he's operating with North Korea. This is how he's operating when he's yelling at Christian Nielsen. It, it just seems to constantly kind of pop up. It's so clear that you can't do complex deals like North Korea or trade deals, which we'll talk about in a second, in the way a business executive would want to do it. That's a perfect yes. place for us to transition and take a brief break. And when we come back, we're going to tackle our second Trump deal about which there's been big news this week. NAFTA! Dun, dun, dun. 
One of the most annoying things about shopping today is this crappy trend of low-quality clothing at super expensive prices or clothing that makes you think that it's going to be nice, but turns out that uh, it dies within two days of buying it. But, you know, if you go to Everlane, that's not going to happen to you. With Everlane, you don't overpay for quality clothes or get low-quality stuff that will wear out really fast. They make premium essentials using the finest materials without traditional markups. They tell you their real costs, so you know you're never overpaying. Everlane wants you to know what you're paying for and why. So they'll tell you the materials they use and even the ethical factories that they work with. And because they sell directly to you, their prices are 30 to 50% lower than traditional retailers. Everlane's clothes look better, they cost less, and they last longer than some of the crap that you can buy. Essentials like their Cotton Crew t-shirt are exactly what they should be. Simple, stylish, and made from quality materials. Look, their timeless essentials are just what you're looking for. No frills, just quality. And right now, you can check out our personalized collection at everlane.com worldly. Plus, you'll get free shipping on your first order. That's everlane.com worldly. Everlane.com worldly. If you haven't seen Vox's new show on Netflix yet, you really should. It's called Explain, and every episode, it's about a 15 to 20-minute deep dive into one important topic. This week, that's political correctness. I watched the episode last night, and I really enjoyed its deep dive into what political correctness means. There's even a conversation with comedians like W. Kamau Bell about what topics comedians will talk to audiences about and how they navigate tricky situations and deal with the fallout if they go too far. So make sure you check it out by searching for Explained or Vox on Netflix. Or go straight to netflix.com slash explain. Welcome back from the ads. Uh, we've been talking about the way North Korea talks are going and what that tells us about Trump's negotiating style. You know, the basic takeaway is that Trump made a kind of fake deal with North Korea, something that he claims has solved the problem but actually didn't. And now his aides are stuck dealing with the fallout. You can see a similar pattern at work in another major Trump negotiating effort, the talks with Mexico and Canada about revising NAFTA, the North American Free Trade Agreement. Uh, we've gotten some big news on that front this week. Dara, why don't you walk us through, starting with, you know, the basic outlines of how NAFTA works. Sure. So NAFTA was, you know, signed in the mid-90s under the Clinton administration. The North American Free Trade Agreement, really North America being the U.S., Mexico, and Canada, the three kind of major players in the economy, setting it up so that the three can trade with each other in most cases without tariffs. Like, we've heard a lot about tariffs under Trump because— most of the U.S.'s trading partners had operated in a reduced tariff or tariff-free zone in a pre-Trump era. Donald Trump really doesn't love the fact that there are low trade barriers with Mexico in particular that have shifted a lot of manufacturing there after and after it was first signed, wants to bring back a lot of domestic manufacturing to the U.S. So he has kind of threatened to blow up NAFTA and kind of start from scratch, getting to a question mark, question mark, question mark deal that will save American manufacturing. I am going to renegotiate NAFTA. And if I can't make a great deal, then we're going to terminate NAFTA and we're going to create new deals. We're going to have trade. That was from that same debate with Hillary Clinton. So the negotiations over NAFTA have been ongoing off and on for about a year between, you know, the three countries involved. And as you might expect, each country has kind of different things that they want 
to change and different things that it's really important that they protect. And, you know, some of those are kind of Canada, for example, really doesn't want to open up its dairy industry. They have this really complicated supply management system. You know, they don't want a pure free trade agreement because that would undermine dairy. The U.S. really wants Canada and Mexico to up its duty-free minimums for people coming back from the U.S. to those countries. Like, there are lots of complicated moving parts. Because of that, it's hard to make a trilateral deal. So over the summer, the U.S. and Mexico were kind of engaging in these side conversations because it seemed like that's where a lot of the big problems were. Canada was kind of doing a this is fine whistling, like a little bit unnerved, but not, not, not concerned that there was actually going to be a side deal made because what was promised wasn't a side deal. What was promised was a new trilateral NAFTA, except that at the beginning of this week, Donald Trump announces that the U.S. and Mexico have agreed to a preliminary bilateral deal and threatens in a press conference that he might leave Canada out of it. Now, this is a problem both because they didn't tell Congress that this was going to be a bilateral deal and because there's this deadline of the end of the month, which is to say the end of August, the end of this week, because Congress needs to have 90 days of notice before the president signs a deal. And the president of Mexico is about to leave. He got replaced in an election over the summer by the very left populist Andres Manuel López Obrador. And so— AMLO. AMLO. And so they can't actually have President Enrique Peña Nieto sign a deal or or agree to a deal and then have AMLO sign it. Like, those things both need to happen with the same president. So— We have this hurtling toward resolution thing where Canada is trying to elbow its way back into these negotiations and figure out how it can solve all of its problems with the U.S. in the span of five days because Donald Trump went and decided that a bilateral NAFTA was the right way to go. Okay, so Alex, what the hell, like what even was in this alleged U.S.-Mexico agreement, right? Like very basically, it had something to do with cars, right? Right. Yes, it it had to do with cars. So the basic issue here is that Since NAFTA was signed, it is true that a lot of manufacturing jobs have gone to Mexico because Mexican labor is cheaper. So that has led a lot of American car manufacturers to open up factories in Mexico because even though they would be exporting those cars back into the U.S. market, it would be still cheaper to produce, et cetera. So part of the deal is that 40 to 45 percent of what the parts of a car are made by workers that make $16 an hour or more, which is supposed to help increase wages for, for workers. Right. So that, you know, Mexico isn't like driving business there by driving wages down. The other part of this is that currently under NAFTA, 62.5% of car parts in any given car have to be made in one of the three countries in order to avoid tariffs. This would increase that to 75% of those parts. So, you know, it would increase in theory the domestic manufacturing industry in the U.S. as well as in Mexico. Right. So the counterpoint would be if you, say, had Chinese manufactured auto parts and you shipped them into Mexico, assembled the car in Mexico and called it a Mexican car. That's now more difficult to do under the, the new rules that have sort of been agreed to by the U.S. and Mexico. I say sort of because it's like not clear legally if you can do a bilateral renegotiation of NAFTA, right? right. Well, Canada, you, you can't do a bilateral renegotiation of a trilateral deal. That's just yeah. that's right. just to, that's just math. <laughs> <laughs> but like, right, and then there's also this question of like when and how Congress has to be notified because right. Congress was notified that the U.S. was renegotiating NAFTA with Canada and Mexico, and members of Congress have asked the question, well. You never told us you were negotiating a trade deal with Mexico. Can you really come back and say, 
oops, one of these two parties fell out of this negotiation. Here's like, it would basically be like you guys going into the studio for Worldly and telling our producer, Bird Pinkerton, that, you know, I couldn't show up today. Like, that's <laughs> not the episode y'all agreed to. <laughs> no, we planned a very Dara-centric episode this week. You've just been knocking on the door this entire time. <laughs> <laughs> right, I am Christia Freeland in this negotiation. She's the foreign minister for Canada, and she's been literally running in and out of meetings with U.S. Trade Representative Robert Lighthizer uh, and, you know, other high-level officials this week. The you know there, there were talks that they were going to have low-level officials, like, working overnight Wednesday night. It actually kind of looks like there's a possibility that Canada and the U.S. might work out their differences right now. There are things that's, that are very clearly important to each of them, but all of a sudden yesterday, both countries were saying, well, maybe we actually can get a deal done. What's worth noting is that from Canada's perspective, getting a deal done mostly looks like getting the U.S. to continue to do things that NAFTA did. They really want protections for cultural products. Like Canada has, Canadian radio stations have to have a certain number of Canadian artists on. Uh, So for example, you know, the kind of Avril Lavigne, Skater Boy, like U.S. big crossover hits. Like that, that might not have been a big hit in the U.S. had it not already been on the Canadian airwaves. That was a factor because she was, you know, promoting domestic Canadian content. Like to be fair, Canada in her case, really I think to. it was complicated. That really it was. Set off it the was Avril so Lavigne complicated. Um, but <laughs> why'd you have to go and make it so complicated? <laughs> Early millennials will remember. Anyway. Um, you know, that's something they really want to protect. They really want to protect the existing dispute resolution provisions in NAFTA. They don't want it to go through domestic courts when one country is challenging the tariff practices of another. Like, those are things that the Trump administration theoretically wanted to change. And in order to make a deal with Canada by this deadline, they're going to have to agree to them, which is to say, if Donald Trump hadn't said on Monday, we have this deal and forced Canada to back its way in, they wouldn't have been in a situation where they had to preserve parts of NAFTA that in theory are going to be really bitter pills for them. Now I want I want to talk about the connections between this and the North Korea case, because it strikes me that, Dara, the way that you just described it is similar to the way, Alex, you were talking yes, about absolutely. the North Korean negotiations earlier, right? Trump this week announces something that he claims fixed NAFTA. And by the way, this auto-tweaking does not actually solve most of the job problems with NAFTA that you're right. referring to during the campaign. Once again, even if the deal went through with Mexico, which it's not clear it will, it would not fix the problems that he identified. But then he went out and now U.S. trade policy aides like Trump's North Korea aides are now scrambling to try to deal with this problem for all these crazy deadlines. Right. I mean, the, the crazy thing is that as Trump basically goes, we have a new NAFTA deal with just one part of... Yeah, he called it a new NAFTA. He oh, called like it new NAFTA. Na- it's not NAFTA anymore, he claims. Well, well again, it's a U.S.-Mexico trade agreement. He goes, we're going to get rid of NAFTA, the name, and then if Canada signs on, we'll think of a new name. It's, it's rebranding. It's the trade policy equivalent of saying North Korea isn't a nuclear threat. I think we've buried the lead here. I think the big news is that Donald Trump has decreed that Canada is no longer part of North America. <laughs> <laughs> Whoa, if true. <laughs> I, well, I mean, the, the crazy thing, again, is that He announces this, but his aides have been working tirelessly to get Canada involved and give Canada some of what it wants, but basically get America most of what it wants. And to basically say— To open up the Canadian dairy industry, which Donald Trump, like, in the weird way that he hyper-focuses on things, Donald Trump is really mad about Canadian dairy protectionism. I mean, is that because of Wisconsin? Like, genuine question. I mean, 
that it may very well be. Or, it seems or, a little too strategic. I mean, right, it's, I think <laughs> hey, it's, I gave him some credit on things. It's think. generally true that Donald Trump really doesn't like trade protections when they're being levied against the U.S., which is how he gets into all these escalatory trade Fair wars, enough. right? So it's really unfair that Canada should be protective of its domestic dairy industry, it would be totally, you know, while it's totally dumb that America isn't just as muscular protecting its domestic auto industry. I mean, maybe the crux here is that he's, he basically said on Monday, this thing that I've been railing against, I have fixed it. It is done, right? It is done. If Canada wants to join, sure, fine. That's okay. But if otherwise, I basically, it's done. And of course, we're still, the whole point that you've been describing, Dara, is that people are still scrambling to get it done. Right. Right? So as, to, just to connect it back to the North Korea thing, for Trump to say X thing is completed, I have solved the issue, but then to the cognitive dissonance to see that his aides are still working on the same issue that he says he solved, I that I genuinely don't understand. There's, and there's a scene that perfectly summarizes the dynamic, Alex, that you were just talking about because the aides have to convince Trump that this work is just – you know, them acting out his will, not fixing the problems that he created or else he gets mad at them. Uh, and so it's like not just fixing Trump's problems, it's covering it up from Trump himself that they're fixing his problems. So uh, last June, there was a cabinet meeting. In fact, it was the first public cabinet meeting. So uh, I think what we'll do, most of you know most of the people around the room, but I'm going to start with our... And so there are reporters all around the edges of um, the cabinet room. There's cameras and mics. And you have all of these different cabinet members. They're sitting around a dark wooden table, and they're talking to the president. And it's just this incredibly sloppy praise. Uh, we are receiving the support of law enforcement all over America. They have so this is Attorney General Jeff Sessions. Uh, they are so thrilled that we have a new uh, idea that we're going to support them and work together to properly, lawfully uh, fight the rising crime that we're seeing. And, uh, and, it's, and it's able great. to serve you in that regard. You set the exact right message, and it's being responded. The response is fabulous around the country. Great success, including MS-13. They're being thrown out in record numbers and rapidly, and uh, they're being depleted. They'll all be gone pretty soon, so... You're right, Jeff. Thank you very much. On behalf of the entire senior staff. So, so did you catch that, right? There you have the president saying that we are going to fix this MS-13 problem. And Jeff Sessions is just playing along, talking about how great he is and how much law enforcement loves the president. And Dara, our resident immigration reporter, to be clear, we have not solved the MS-13 problem, right? No, I mean, the MS-13 problem was never quite as big as Donald Trump said it was. But no, we have not, you know, we are not on the verge of throwing all MS-13 members out of the country. The other reason that I love that we picked this clip is that we picked this before reports came out on Wednesday evening that Donald Trump, we know that Donald Trump has soured on Jeff Sessions, but he's now, you know, really just complaining to literally any senator he can get his hands on about his attorney general, including talking about how, like, he he doesn't like his southern accent. He talks like he has marbles in his mouth. One of Trump's main complaints is that Sessions doesn't defend Trump well enough on television. This is ironic because Jeff Sessions is the Trump cabinet official who's doing the most on policy. He is the aide. He's the equivalent of the North Korea or trade aides who is just scrambling to implement the agenda that Donald Trump says he wants. But not only does he have to be, like, scrambling on this because Donald Trump is not himself engaged, but Donald Donald Trump does not give Jeff Sessions any credit for doing any of this. As far as Donald Trump is concerned, he has already solved the problem. And Jeff Sessions' problem is that he isn't eloquent enough in praising him. And so the takeaway here from all of this is that stability in American foreign and domestic policy depends on aides 
making the president like them and convincing him that he has had all of these major successes that he has not. And it is unclear how long the top aides of the president can continue to deceive him about the very nature of reality itself. Especially when in foreign policy, it generally requires that you get other countries to agree to whatever terms you are setting out to hate, get the president not to hate That's you. the old way, Dara. <laughs> and we're going to leave it there. Um, I'd like to thank our producer, Bird Pinkerton, our social media manager, Julie Bogan. I'd also like to have a special shout out. Today is the birthday of my nephew, Mateo Gurria, worldly super fan, one of the few recipients of a worldly t-shirt. He's turning 13. His bar mitzvah is really soon. So to Mateo, we say l'chaim. And to the rest of you, goodbye. Hey, listeners, I'm Arthur Brooks, host of The Arthur Brooks Show on the Vox Media Podcast Network. If you like this show, I know you'll enjoy listening to my new podcast. In it, I explore the art of disagreement. My guests and I provide some practical advice for navigating disagreements with friends and family, persuading and inspiring others through storytelling, and countering social media's amplifying effect on the culture of outrage. Listen and subscribe to The Arthur Brooks Show on Apple Podcasts or the podcast player of your choice.